Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Cryptid. Heard that term before? What's it mean to you? Something natural or much more unsettling? Perhaps the most disturbing cryptids are the ones who are the most like humans. On tonight's program, I will be discussing one such entity, and it may be closer to you than you realize. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope that you're doing well. Hope everyone's doing great wherever you are in the world. I've felt a bit under the weather the last few days, so I do apologize for um, the delay in getting a show out. But uh, I've said it before, I would rather take a little longer and give you a better quality program than rush something out just for the uh, just for the sake of getting a program out there. So uh, just bear with me, folks. I'm doing my best to keep the stream of content going. Just want to give uh, the traditional show shout-outs to some of the very close friends of the show who have always supported me. So I want to make sure I give a shout-out to Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, Eddie in California, Chris and his family in Illinois, Adriana and Nico in Texas, the Fidianga tribe, my Montana family. And there's a couple of people that I would also like to give some shout-outs to on Instagram. One of them is uh, a content creator who's been out there for a while now, trying their best to, you know, get some traction on YouTube and Instagram. Uh, the first one is uh, GSI Paranormal, and uh, they put up a lot of videos, a lot of, uh, um, you know, ghost hunting, spirit hunting type uh, programs. So if that's something that interests you, you know, of course, go over there and check that out. And the other one is the Mysteries of the World with an underscore at the end. Now, this person really puts out some good content, some some good thought-provoking type of stuff, and uh, has posted a lot of similar images to what I have, and is very good about, uh, you know, doing a bit of background. So they don't just post up a photo, but they actually put up some good content, make sure that they've written in some, some really good text. So, you know, I always want to support those that are furthering the same interests that I have, and, uh, you know, keeping you interested in some of the things that are out there in the world. Now, the main topic of tonight's program comes to you by suggestion of a listener in Michigan. So, Mike, thanks for sending the request through for me to cover over the melon heads. So I'll be getting to that in just a little bit after I cover over the general news for the program. And then, of course, the news of the damned, which we never, never miss on this program. So first and foremost, uh, I've been quite busy in the background, you know, working on the website, trying to get some things set up for you there. I've been trying to put a few posts up. So for those of you who aren't familiar, you can just go to theparanormalsun.com and you'll find there, you know, I've got blogs. I try to post a little bit. You'll find uh, both of the programs, both the Fortunate Sun and the Paranormal Sun there. You can listen to them, you know, straight from the website. And you can always interact with me if there's something that you're interested in. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover, you can always email me. The email addresses are at the website. You know, you can also send me a message on the site there. Uh, if you so feel, then you can uh, donate uh, something to the program on PayPal. If, if the program is, uh, you know, something that you'd like to support, you can also go over to Patreon and support either one of the programs if you'd like. Uh, you know, anything that uh, anyone does, uh, of course, is appreciated. So thanks for that, folks. I also want to give one last uh, very special shout-out to France, 
thank you to the listeners in France. Uh, you become by far the number one market for the Paranormal Sun. Got the most downloads coming out of France. So, look, thank you very much. I do appreciate your support of the program, of course. And again, if there's anything in particular you'd like me to cover over, uh, let me know. And I might do my best to cover over a French topic in the near future, seeing as how I've got so many listeners there. So, uh, of course, I appreciate everyone's support everywhere in the world. But, uh, you know, thank you very much. Um, it, when I started this program, I never thought that it would become such a worldwide listening audience, especially in France. So thank you very much for supporting the program. And, uh, you know, hopefully I continue to deliver the type of content that you really enjoy. So having covered over all of that, um, now, folks, we will get into the news of the damned. Now, for those of you who are new listeners to the program, the news of the damned comes from Charles Fort, who was one of the founding fathers of the paranormal, the unexplained, the supernatural fields, and really giving it a scientific basis to look through information and categorize it and present it to people to uh, make up their own opinions on it. And Charles Fort regarded any topics that were not covered by science, that were excluded, that were ignored as damned subjects. So that's where we get the name, uh, the news of the damned. And tonight we've got a really good mix of articles. I think you'll really enjoy them. Now, as always, uh, to the new listeners, any of the news articles that I read, I always put a link in the show notes so you can go over and check it out on the show notes and see where I'm getting these articles from if you would like to read more. So firstly, um, as I always try to do on the program, when I cover over a story, I try to follow it up as time goes on. So whereas normally we would do three articles on the news of the damned, tonight I've got four. And the reason is because I found out uh, very shortly before going to air about an article regarding the ongoing Maje Brazil UFO sightings that I've promised to cover over for you. So as I've said, the news out there has been, uh, you know, pretty sparse. Looking around on the internet, I do look every few days, and there hasn't been a whole lot come out in the last two weeks. Uh, now in saying that, I've got this article here that's come out, and this is from uh, theexpress.co.uk, and this one is titled, Brazil UFO, Investigation into quote, alien crash, unquote, reveals truth behind viral Maje UFO footage. UFO experts have investigated reports of downed alien spacecraft in Brazil to determine the truth behind the viral story. Now, this was from Sebastian Ketley, and this was published on the 18th of June. But as I say, it's only just become, uh, you know, only just come to my attention tonight. So it says sightings of an alien UFO in Brazil went viral on social media in May this year, with many people claiming an extraterrestrial spacecraft crashed north of Rio de Janeiro. Conspiracy theorists took over platforms like Twitter and Facebook to share photos and video clips of glowing lights in the skies. One video in particular alleged to show a UFO crash site in Maje Forest along Brazil's east coast on the Guanabara Bay. As the story gained traction, the hashtag MajeUFO began trending on Twitter. Soon after, the hashtag seemingly disappeared, and many of the shared video clips were taken down, leading people to speculate a cover-up was in action. According to the Brazilian news site UOL, local authorities and, and the Air Force had no record of unidentified flying objects around the time of the supposed crash. So what exactly happened in Brazil last month, 
And did alien UFOs really visit our planet? According to investigators from MUFON, the Brazil UFO story was a well-constructed hoax. The MUFON team says, The case, which has been widely circulated on social media outlets, has been determined to be nothing more than an elaborate hoax. MUFON is a nonprofit organization tasked with collecting eyewitness accounts, videos, and photos of UFO sightings. The investigation into the Brazil UFO was led by Brazilian director of MUFON, Adamar José Guivillard. The MUFON chief determined there was no factual evidence to back up the UFO crash story. He said, My team and I have intensely investigated this alleged case and found out that it is a total hoax. It started with a fake audio about a supposed UFO crash publicized over the net, later assumed to be a fabrication by the female author. As time went on, the story got bigger and bigger every day, with many alleged witnesses making all sorts of claims, all disconnected from each other, all exaggerated, and mostly lies. According to Mr. Geviard, some people claim to have heard telepathic requests for help from the downed aliens trapped inside the, the spacecraft. Others, others have said children were trapped inside of the UFO, or even more bizarrely, reports suggested predatory aliens that feast on humans were aboard. The UFO crash story was also debunked by Google after conspiracy theorists shared satellite images of a white object over Maje. A Google spokesperson told Vice, What people are seeing in the imagery is a reflection that's temporarily overloading the satellite sensor. Essentially, the sun reflected off the surface of that building just at the right angle to briefly blind the satellite. This is a pretty common phenomenon known as saturation or blooming. The UFO story was also ridiculed by members of MUFON who expressed their skepticism on the group's website. One person said, Eyewitnesses say you can make sources or an eyewitness say anything you want them to. Just hearsay until you have concrete proof, just like fishermen telling tales about the one that got away. Another person said, Most stories and photos are just too good to be true. Rule of thumb is, don't believe everything you see or hear on the internet. Now, folks, this is a pretty one-sided article. Now, uh, I haven't looked into it any further. If this indeed comes from MUFON, um, you know, I take everything on both sides of an argument like this with a grain of salt. You know, I always try to do, do my due diligence, and I try to reserve judgment until the facts are in. But if this is indeed from MUFON, then, you know, they've, they've got a bit of, uh, uh, you know, they've got a fair bit of weight in the UFO community, and I would tend to believe it from them uh, as opposed to many others. However, as always, we keep an open mind here on the Paranormal Sun. I will cover it over in future again as more articles come out. That's the thing with breaking, uh, breaking topics like this. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear something that makes you really swing to one side and say, oh, there's nothing to it. Then you'll hear something else come out, you know, that swings it to the right. And, um, yeah, it's just something, you know, quite interesting. And, you know, definitely, folks, keep your, keep your mind open when it comes to things like this. Wait for the smoke to clear and for the dust to settle. And, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, we'll, we'll find out something. I've got no dog in the fight. Um, you know, I, it's not like I'm the one who broke the story and said that, uh, oh, I saw a UFO. But, uh, you know, we always keep an open mind here. And I'm not going to blow the whistle on this just yet and call it a hoax until I know for sure what's going on. So, yeah, that's the latest update on the Manger UFO, folks.
Okay, folks, now the next article here is from MysteriousUniverse.org, and this will be quite interesting to my listeners in North Carolina, as uh, this one is regarding the Lost Colony of Roanoke. So this one is titled, The Mystery of the Lost Colony of Roanoke May Finally Be Solved, and it was from Jocelyn LeBlanc, uh, June 21st, 2020. What exactly happened to the lost colony of Roanoke is one of America's oldest unsolved mysteries, but according to new evidence, it may have finally been solved. In 1587, a group of 115 English settlers arrived on the outer banks of North Carolina called Roanoke Island. They began a new life in the the U.S., but just three years after their arrival, the colony was completely abandoned. While it's not entirely certain what exactly happened to the colonists, There is some speculation that they traveled inland or maybe they relocated to Hatteras Island. The colonists on Roanoke Island carved the word Croatan into a wooden post in reference to the Croatan tribe that lived on Hatteras Island. It's still unclear as to why they carved that word into the post. Was it to let others know that they moved to Hatteras Island to live with the Croatans or that the tribe attacked their settlement? The colonists were told to carve a Maltese cross into a tree if they were attacked or forced to leave the island, but no cross was ever found, so an attack or battle seemed unlikely. Scott Dawson, who is a hobby archaeologist and from Hatteras Island, has heard many stories over the years about the missing colonists. I saw a lot of artifacts coming up when people were building houses or sometimes from erosion from storms, he said, adding, it gutted me to see that no one was doing anything about it. So that's when he decided to start the Croatan Archaeological Society in an attempt to find evidence that the colonists did in fact move to Hatteras. Dawson reached out to the British archaeologist professor Mark Horton from the University of Bristol, who was very interested in helping out. I think it's a really interesting point, you know. Why are a bunch of Brits working on on this site in North Carolina? I suppose the answer is, it's our history and heritage as much as it is yours. It's part of that shared story, he stated, adding, I've been excavating 16th century sites in England for a very long time and thought, well, maybe I could bring a new perspective on this problem because we know what this stuff actually looks like. They have been performing excavations since 2009 and have found thousands of pretty interesting artifacts, including several items from the 16th century, the same time frame that the Roanoke colonists arrived on the island and later went missing. Sword handles, copper rings, earrings, glass, and writing slates, and a Nuremberg token were among the items found. Several pictures can be seen here. So there's a link here, and again, I'll have the link in the show notes. So why did the colonists go to Hatteras Island? Horton believes that it makes a ton of sense for them to have relocated there. When these colonies became abandoned, you get massive political eruptions and disagreements and people walking out and things, he stated. So it's not unlikely that one group might have gone up the Chesapeake, up the Abermourley. But I'm pretty confident one group at least, probably the the pretty substantial part, came out to Hatteras Island, he went on to explain. To go to the point of the Outer Banks where you can see vessels passing by most easily. We know that the Native American communities there were friendly. It was a good place with one's allies in a place where you could potentially be rescued. Dawson believes that they have found the survivor's camp, where the Roanoke colonists would have lived when they first arrived on Hatteras Island and before they aligned with the Croatans. They were planning on excavating the site this spring, but the date had to be pushed back to next year because of the coronavirus pandemic. 
Dawson detailed his findings in his new book called The Lost Colony and Hatteras Island. It will be exciting to see what they find when they're able to excavate the site of the possible survivor's camp. Now, folks, this is one of the oldest mysteries um, that has to do with European colonization in the U.S., and I was fascinated by this story when I was growing up and reading about it. And there are all sorts of different theories about it. As it says, you know, they were wiped out by Indians, that a another tribe came and they assimilated with the tribe because there are stories of Indians with uh, fair skin and, and blue eyes throughout the East Coast of America. It is a very interesting uh, topic. You know, as I've said on this program many times, Science would have you believe, um, and you know, historians would have you believe that we understand 95% of everything that's gone on since man's been around. But even in fairly recent history, so you know, going back like to this topic 500 years ago, there's a lot that we don't know about. I mean, you know, you'd be amazed how many people don't actually know the true history of America, who's been there, uh, you know, which groups came and colonized. A lot of people don't realize how significant, uh, you know, countries like Scotland were in being involved. Uh, you know, some of the sailors, especially going to the New World uh, on English ships. Uh, people don't realize how involved France was. I mean, uh, a massive amount of the New World. So, you know, North America, uh, the United States and Canada were, you know, all vast swaths of it controlled by France for quite a long time. The Spanish were heavily involved, you know, even into areas like Florida and Georgia. And a lot of people forget this or, you know, they just don't know. It's one of those things that's just been forgotten to history, kind of swept to the side. Uh, interesting footnote. So, you know, things like this really fascinate me. And I really do hope that they, you know, come to the bottom of this because this is definitely one of those top tier American mysteries, uh, you know, United States mysteries. What happened to this colony? This is the colony that preceded Jamestown by quite a long time. This is the colony that, uh, you know, Virginia Dare was the uh, famous first English person born on American soil. So, you know, let's see what comes of it. Really interesting story, and I hope you enjoyed that one. And now on to the next story of the News of the Damned. And this is part of my ongoing coverage of the Forest Fen treasure story. Uh, this article was submitted by... Harry, you know, good friend of the show in North Carolina, so thanks for that, Harry. And this one is from InsideEdition.com, and it's titled, Forrest Fenn announced his treasure was found, but CBS anchor Tony Ducopil says that may not be the case. Now, this was published on the 19th of June, uh, so just four days ago. Um, and sorry, folks, just got pop-ups on the website, quite annoying. It was to the disappointment of many that wealthy antique dealer Forrest Fenn announced the mysterious buried treasure he'd hidden in the Rocky Mountains had been found. But CBS This Morning anchor Tony Ducopil cautioned that the announcement shouldn't be taken at face value. I think the treasure is 100% real. I don't, however, think that it's been found, Ducopil said to Inside Edition Digital. Ducopil has a theory about the coveted treasure that's gone unclaimed for the last decade. Why I don't think the treasure has really been found is because Forrest told me his plan was to entomb himself along with the treasure, he said. Fenn recently announced that the treasure was found. The chase is over. He said the lucky person who discovered it did not want his name mentioned and is from back east. 
He also shared three photos of what he said were of the chest, writing, It is darker than it was ten years ago when I left it on the ground and walked away. But Duco Peel says the photos aren't proof that the treasure has been found. Noting the pictures are undated, taking in an un- unnamed location, and those that include Fenn are from before he buried the treasure. There's no proof that it's been found. He's offered none, he said, and he's 89 now. It's possible that what he's actually doing is creating an opening for himself to complete the rather dark and bizarre plan he, exper- he explained to me nearly a decade ago. Ducapil spent nearly a week with Fenn at his Santa Fe, New Mexico compound in 2012. He was dying for the publicity, Ducapil said. At the time, he'd written the book, Thrill of the Chase, two, two years prior, and the only people who had mentioned it were little publications or an airline magazine, and he had no credibility as somebody who actually had a lot of collectible items, a.k.a. treasure, and who would do something as crazy as invite people to find it. So when I called, he was like, please come, I'll give you all the time you want. The story was published in Newsweek. It was then that people learned of the chest full of gold and jewels stashed in a secret location, and that clues to find it were in Fenn's book. The article put Fenn's book and his treasure hunt in the national spotlight. Since then, many people have risked their lives to find the treasure, and some have even died. The real reason why I don't think the treasure has really been found is because Forrest told me his plan was to entomb himself along with the treasure, Duco Peel said. I think the treasure is in a location where an older man can still get to it and crawl or insert himself in and alongside the chest. I mean, that's how it was explained to me. You have a guy who's been collecting archaeology his whole life, is so in love with it, he's hatched a plan to make himself part of the record for all time and invite the public in to try and find it and his bones, he continued. I'm confident it is not a hoax. Forrest wants to be remembered for thousands of years, and this is his way of doing so. So look, that's definitely a different spin on it. I hadn't heard that uh, slant before, so thank you very much, Harry, for sending that to me. Look, folks, it's interesting, and no matter what happens here, unless someone comes out and concrete, you know, concretely says, I found it at this location. Here are the G- GPS coordinates. Here are the photos with the time stamps. And, you know, this is my name. This is where I'm from. Unless all of that happens, there are going to be questions around this. As I say, you know, it, it could be, you know, what I've postulated and I'm sure others have as well. Potentially, uh, you know, Fenn has said that the treasure was found to get people to stop searching for it, as there have been people who died. Maybe authorities leaned on them. Who knows? But, uh, you know, nonetheless, it's quite fascinating. And, uh, you know, it's it's a very interesting tale. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 definitely, it's definitely hit its mark as far as what Forrest Fenn asked is that, you know, he wanted to get people out into nature, away from electronics, and back out into the mountains and the wilderness of the Rocky Mountains. So, you know, he's got hundreds of thousands of people out there. Uh, you know, over time, uh, chasing and looking for this treasure. So in in that uh, case, disregarding everything else, it's been a huge success. So, you know, I will keep you abreast of any further developments. Okay, folks, here's the last article of the News of the Damned for this evening. And this one was sent to me from Mysterious World 4 on Instagram. And it's one of his blog posts, but it's still quite interesting. And again, I'll have the link in the show notes. So um, this one, he's covered over a story about a pair of twins from the U.S. 
So it says here, James Jim Lewis of Lima, Ohio, and James Jim Springer of Pequa, Ohio, were twins, separated at birth, who had grown up not 45 miles from each other and ended up leading almost identical lives. Both Jim's mothers knew their sons had a twin brother. Springer's mother was under the impression that the twin had died, while Lewis's mother knew a bit more. At 39 years of age in 1979, Jim Lewis called the probable court, which had a record of his adoption and contacted the Springer family in Pequa. Four days later, he was meeting him in person, and the truth between behind their startling similarities came out. 1. James Jim Lewis was adopted and was named James by his adopted parents. James Jim Springer was adopted and was named James by his adopted parents. They both had a dog named Toy. As a schoolboy, both enjoyed math and carpentry, but never spelling. They both married and named of both their wives was Linda. Later, both got divorced. Both married a second time, and again, both of the wives were named Betty. They both had a son, and both kept the name of their son, James Allen. Both the James Allen drove a Chevrolet and were, and were avid chain smokers. Both James brothers suffered from tension headaches, were prone to nail-biting. They both smoked the same brand of cigarettes and vacationed on the same Florida beach. Upon hearing about the Jim twins' uncanny resemblances, researchers at the University of Minnesota invited the pair to come to their facility for testing. The team of researchers had been performing an ongoing study of twins, hoping to discover if separation had any role in nature versus nurture debate. Now you be the judge. Is it a coincidence? So, folks, um, again, you know, thanks, thanks, thanks for uh, sending that in to me. Um, there have been a lot of studies about twins, and there have been stories uh, like this that I've heard of where, you know, even twins who were separated at birth who don't know each other, they end up liking the same sports team. They end up having the same favorite meal like this. They smoke the same brand of cigarettes. They drive the same brand of car. It is quite fascinating, and it really makes you question, you know, that that nature versus nurture philosophy. And if there isn't some bond between us, and especially those of us who are very close, that although they may be separated, uh, you know, they're never truly separated. Maybe on a psychic level, they're not separated. So again, this is just a very fascinating tale. And it's one of those that, uh, you know, I'm really interested in that bond between twins because they probably got the strongest bond, um, you know, out of kind of natural people you would expect that twins would have the strongest bond. So I find it quite interesting. And in future, you know, I'd love to cover some more stories like this for you. So with that, that wraps up the news of the dam for this evening. I hope you've really enjoyed those articles. And again, I'll have links in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. I'm sure most of you listening to me know what a cryptid is. The definition is an animal whose existence or survival is disputed or unsubstantiated. Some of the best known examples are Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Yeti, Werewolves, the Loch Ness Monster, Mothman, Chupacabras, and the Jersey Devil. What about those that are less well-known? Nearly every area of every continent has some form of strange and undocumented creatures. One of the most saturated areas of the globe is the United States. From the Bunny Man of Northern Virginia to the Rougarou in the bayous of Louisiana, the Goat Man of Maryland, the Oklahoma Octopus, and the Lizard Man of Lee County in South Carolina. There are cryptids of all sorts and sizes. 
There are small ones, gigantic ones, flying ones, and swimming ones. It's a full spectrum of the odd, curious, and unexplained. Ohio, Michigan, and Connecticut all have their own fascinating creatures. Ohio has the Loveland Frogman, the Grassman, and Orange Eyes, who is said to be 11 feet tall and around 1,000 pounds. Michigan has one of the most famous Tier 2 cryptids, the Dogman, an extra-large wolf capable of rearing up on its hind legs to show off its humanoid torso, stare at you with blue or amber eyes, and unleash a frighteningly human scream. The Nain Rouge is a red devil dwarf, and the giant green squirrel of Amble. Connecticut claims the Glawaks, described as part bear, part dog, and part cat. The Jewett City Vampires, and the Mookie Wisug, good spirits who are said to provide protection and good harvest for the Mohicans. One cryptid that all three states have in common are the Melonheads. First theorized in the 1970s, Melonheads are said to be almost completely bald, with misshapen bulbous heads, deformed arms and legs, teeth like daggers, and luminous red eyes. Appearance aside, the most terrifying thing that every Melonhead legend has in common is that these creatures were at one time human. The Melonhead sightings in Michigan began at the Felt Mansion in the town of Holland. The Felt Mansion was built in 1928 by Dor Felt as a summer home for his wife. The mansion was a school and a chapel until it was purchased by the state of Michigan in 1977. The state used the mansion as a state police post and converted the building into a prison. The state sold the estate to Lake Town Township in 1995 for $1, as long as they preserved it. The property is listed in the National Register of Historic Places. The Millenhead legend claims that the mansion was an insane asylum, which housed the creatures. The Allegan County Historical Society says no such asylum ever existed. Local teenagers still claim to encounter the Melonheads near the Felt Mansion. Lake Town Township manager Al Meshkin told the Holland Sentinel that he had heard the tales as a teenager, calling them Wobbleheads. Visitors and late-night explorers have explored have reported seeing curtains moving in the windows of the vacant old building with strange noises such as heavy breathing footsteps, and shadows darting through the darkness. The legend claims that the children devised a plan to escape and kill the doctor that abused them. It is said that the children had no place to hide the body, so they cut it up into small pieces which they hid around the mansion. Rumors exist that teenagers who had broken into the mansion saw ghosts of the children and claimed to see shadows of the killing of the doctor through the light coming from an open door. The legend has spread throughout the region. Now, folks, one thing I've found in researching this, uh, there are many claims that the Felt Mansion in, its, in and of itself is haunted. So not only do you have this urban legend of the Melonheads, you've also got claims that this actual mansion in Michigan is haunted. So it says the Felt Mansion became the St. Augustine Seminary for Boys in 1949. A former student told the Grand Haven Tribune that Melonheads actually referred to something else. Rumors start because of the unknown. The Melonheads were actually seminarians at St. Augustine Seminary in the Felt Mansion, the former student explained. The local kids called us that because it was a private school and we were brainy. A 2011 horror film based on the urban legend has the tagline, Every town has its own monster story. Allegan, Michigan's is the Melonhead. But the first-hand accounts have spread across other parts of the state such as the woods of Ottawa County and Allegan County. 
Some Michigan locals believe that the Melonheads are what is left of the children in, at the Junction Insane Asylum near Feltman, Felt Mansion. The children were all suffering from hydrocephalus, a condition that involves an unusually large amount of cerebral spinal fluid to build within the brain. If there is an early onset of hydrocephalus, it often leads to swelling of the head. Another version is that the melon heads were children with hydrocephalus abused in an insane asylum in Ottawa County and eventually released into the woods. According to legend, a hospital in the area of Saguatuck, Michigan, was treating hydrocephalic or waterhead syndrome children. The hospital was forced to close and the children had nowhere to go, so they were released. Another story described physical and emotional abuse before the children were released into the forest. The creatures are said to reside near the Felt Mansion, but witnesses have reported sightings in wooded areas around Ottawa County. Another theory claims the children once lived in the mansion itself, but later retreated to a system of underground caverns. Ohio's melon heads are said to, to spend most of their time lurking in the suburbs of Kirtland. When the cryptozoologist when the cryptozoologist in you gets tired of hearing the same old stories about Bigfoot, skunk apes, and the Loch Ness Monster, and you're looking for something new to sink your teeth into, head on over to Lake County, Ohio, and check out the Melonheads, weird human-like creatures with enormous heads that roam the countryside in and around Kirtland and Chardon, Ohio. Regarding the origins of the Melonheads, the popular belief is that they were the result of secret government testing that involves strange experiments on human subjects. Whatever they were testing, the result was that the subjects' heads all swole to enormous sizes. Like any good government conspiracy, it was decided that the best thing to do would be to cover the whole thing up. A secret location in the middle of the woods was quickly established, and the melon heads were all shipped there in the middle of the night. Since they were well taken care of, the melon heads were, for the most part, a passive bunch. However, every once in a while, one of them would grow restless for, contract, for contact with the outside world usually waiting until the cover of darkness. A melonhead or two would every so often slip outside the little commune and creep through the woods towards civilization. More often than not, just a glimpse of the outside world would be all a melonhead would need to send them scampering back to the safety of their little town, which is said to be somewhere in the woods near Wins Wisner Road. There are a few offshoots of the melonhead legend in which a doctor is featured predominantly. In those versions, the doctor's name is Crow, so either spelt C-R-O-W-E or C-R-O-W. In the first version, Dr. Crow has somehow managed to acquire, either by kidnapping or through a secret deal with the mental hospital he works at, several individuals that he subjects to bizarre experiments, most of which focus on the brain and the head. Due to the severe trauma, the individual's heads are deformed and misshapen. But since some of Dr. Crow's experiments also included lobotomies, the melon heads are rather docile if not a bit slow. So while every once in a while Dr. Crow would, quote, lose, unquote, a subject for a short period of time, he would always be able to round them up rather quickly and return them. There is also a variation of the tale that focuses less on Dr. Crow and more on his wife. This time, Dr. Crow and his wife are living in an isolated cabin in the woods and have been asked to care for a group of children stricken with hydrocephalus a disease that affects the, the cerebrospinal fluid in one's body, which causing the head to swell. Due to the swollen heads, mean-spirited locals began calling the children melon heads, and the name stuck. It is said that while assisting her husband in lovingly caring for the hydrocephalic children, Mrs. Crow began to see how the melon heads' nickname 
was hurting the children's feelings. Her motherly instincts kicking in, Mrs. Crow drew the children closer to her, protecting them from the outside world. In turn, the children began to look at Mrs. Crow as their very own mother. Unfortunately, Mrs. Crow passed away one day, sending the children's collective world crashing down. Feeling they were now lost without their mother, the children panicked and began running and thrashing about the Crow cabin. Dr. Crow attempted to calm them, but to no avail. In the ensuing melee, a lit kerosene lantern was knocked to the floor, which, was, which then set the old cabin on fire. Fed by the old wood of the cabin, the fire soon engulfed everything, including Dr. Crow and all the children. The melonheads said to roam the woods in this version are ghosts of the children who burned to death in the cabin fire. The final legend associated with the melonheads doesn't even mention them, but it bears discussion because Dr. Crow is the central figure. Besides, it's the most disturbing of all of the variants. Here, Dr. Crow performs illegal abortions in his cabin in the woods and even manages to find the time to kill a deformed baby or two in his spare time. Afterwards, he would bury the tiny bodies around the knoll near his cabin. Said to be abandoned now, the basement of the doctor's house is said to echo with cries from the departed babies, as does the area surrounding the knoll. With that in mind, it should come as no surprise that the bridge near where Dr. Crow's cabin is said to be is now officially a crybaby bridge. No matter where they came from, most kids in the area know somebody whose sister's best friend knew a guy whose dentist saw the melon heads one time. It's apparently a popular thing for high school kids to go to drive around the area late at night looking for them. Some say there was there was at one time a family with a mentally disabled child with an oversized cranium who used to stand at the fence at the edge of his parents' property, and that all the myths and horror stories are much ado about one unfortunate kid. At any rate, melon heads are most strongly associated with Wisner Road near Chardon. They are also sighted on King Memorial Road, especially in or around the King Memorial Cemetery there. When the road enters Geoga County, it becomes Mentor Road, and the graveyard commonly called King Memorial is technically named Larned Cemetery. Why they like it here is anybody's guess. So now on to the legends in Connecticut. In southwest Connecticut, there are several versions of the Melonhead myth. The most popular version tells the story of Melonheads that survived a fire in their insane asylum in the early 1960s. The patients took refuge in the woods around Fairfield County and New Haven County. The Melonheads escaped from Fairfield Hills Hospital, a now-abandoned mental institution, or Garner Correctional Institute, which, speci which specializes in inmates with mental health problems, their deformities being the result of cannibalism and inbreeding. Both are in Newton, Connecticut. A variation on that theme has the Melonheads escaping from an unnamed mental institution in the 1960s. The building supposedly burned. Some of the inmates escaped and turned to cannibalism, which caused their heads to swell. Another, another theory is that the Melonheads date back to colonial times and that they were members of the Shelton Trumbull family tree, after which two Connecticut towns are named. In this variation of the legend, the Shelton Trumbull clan were exiled on the charge of witchcraft, and their only chance of survival was to seek shelter in the woods. And once again, the Melonheads' disfigurement is attributed to inbreeding and feeding on anyone who wandered through their new home. Both are in Newtown, Connecticut. A number of Connecticut-based legends of the Melonheads have one characteristic in common. 
the inclusion of a secluded rustic or single lane, usually dirt road, running through the Melonheads wooded territory. Many towns in Fairfield County and New Haven County have rural and forested sections, and it is not uncommon for these forests to have rural roads running through them. These roads at times are associated with the local variation of the Melonhead legend and are said to be part of the Melonhead's territory. In a number of towns such as Shelton, Trumbull, and Monroe, several legends place the Melonhead's territory around a mysterious and mythical street commonly referred to as Dracula Drive. None of the towns that have a Melonhead legend have roads designated as Dracula Drive. Depending on what version of the legend is told, one of the several existing streets are mistakenly referred to or coincidentally coincide with the Dracula Drive mentioned in the Melonhead stories. For instance, some, some legends place the Melonhead's territory in and around Velvet Street, which runs through a wooded area of Trumbull and Monroe, near the eastern border. Other legends mistake Saw Mill City Road in Shelton as Dracula Drive. Now that gives you a bit of an overview of the differences in between these stories in all three states. Now I've compiled some individual stories here that have been provided to different uh, publications by people, you know, with a bit of a background. Now fittingly, this is the 13th episode of The Paranormal Sun. And by sheer coincidence, I have 13 stories. Eight are from Michigan, three are from Ohio, and two are from Connecticut. So the first story is from Connecticut. And it says, there are many streets in Connecticut that are known colloquially as Dracula Drive. The Melonheads are said to lurk around these roads. In Fairfield, Dracula Drive is nicknamed for Velvet Street, the place where Megan O'Connell was when something terrifying happened. According to Weird New England, your guide to New England's local legends and best-kept secrets, Megan and a group of her friends decided they wanted to do something fun after a high school football game in the early 1980s. Megan's friend Debbie had a Ford Granada, and they all piled into it in search of an adventure. They ended up on Velvet Street, where they got out of the car to look for some melon heads, and they searched the woods. They heard Debbie's car turn on behind them. Stunned, they ran back to where it was parked. The headlights flashed, and suddenly the car was barreling towards them. They took cover, and as the car drove by, they saw its occupants, creatures that could have almost passed for human, were it not for their huge, bulbous heads. The next one's from Michigan, and this is uh, from Weird Michigan. Your travel guide to Michigan's local legends and best-kept secrets includes a first-person account of an encounter with a melon head. Kelly taught Bedrosian claims that she was exploring the grounds of the then-abandoned Felt Mansion with her friends one night when she saw a man in the distance. He had an unusually large head, but she wasn't scared. Then he started walking towards them. She writes, Not knowing who this man could be, my friend yells, Hello, to try and be friendly. But all we got was a loud grunt, and the man continued to walk towards us, but now at a faster pace. At this point, the same idea hit all of us, and we all started sprinting towards our car. We scrambled in and peeled out of the parking lot at a good, at full speed, not slowing down until we were several miles from the mansion. This one's from Ohio. A story in Weird U.S., your travel guide to America's local legends and best-kept secrets, tells yet another version of the Melonhead legend in Ohio. Paul I. recounts that he heard as a teenager in the 1960s, According to Paul, some teenagers saw a melon head along the, the side of the road 
walk in the woods, and they followed him into a farmhouse deep in the woods. Two adults and several children with malformed heads sat on the porch. One said that he was a nuclear scientist in World War II, and the radiation exposure he suffered caused deformities in his children. When Paul and some of his friends went looking for the farmhouse, they were intercepted by several police officers who tried so hard to convince them that the story was fiction that they became even more convinced of the existence of melon heads. Now this one's from Connecticut. It says, There are rumors that an insane asylum near Trumbull, Connecticut, burned to the ground in 1960. Supposedly, some of the patients escaped the fire and settled in the surrounding woods. They, haunted small, they hunted small animals for food, and when the winter set in and the hunting became too hard, they resorted to slaying and, cons and consuming hitchhikers. The group continued to live in isolation in the woods, where inbreeding within the small group caused the next generation to develop deformities. On the rare occasion that outsiders came into contact with them, they called them melon heads based on their appearance. This one's from Ohio, and it says, I live in Eastlake, Ohio, not far from Kirtland. I've heard many stories and have seen many things in the woods of Kirtland. I've seen the burnt shack of Dr. Crow and saw the chain that the melon heads hung his dead corpse from. I can say as one person that the melon heads are in fact real. Close by Kirtland, there is a small castle for picnics and barbecues and miles of hiking trails. When you walk down these trails, you can see mutilated animals in the deep parts of the woods. I've been hiking back in the woods for as long as I can remember. Not one time while strolling have I not seen small dead animals and mutilated corpses and bones. And that's from Rich Glear. The next one here is from Michigan. And it says... The story, as I have heard it, is that Dr. Crow was a doctor whom practiced medicine out of his house in the early 1800s. He had either been given these kids with mental problems, or he had kidnapped some kids. Again, I have heard it both ways. He then ran experiments on them, injecting their brains with water. This caused the kids to become even more nuts, and their heads to swell up like melons. Anyway, he kept them locked away in cages in a green barn next to his house. Now, at this point, the story gets a little fuzzy. Either the barn burnt down in an, in an accident, and a few of the melon heads escaped, or the barn is still there. I have yet to visit the old crow house, so I don't know if the barn is still standing or not. I am more inclined to believe it burned down. Anyway, these melon heads still roam the area out near the Holden Arbitorium, Wisner Road, for from what I have been told. Supposedly, they come out only at night, and if it is a full moon, they are extremely vicious and will attack any humans they see. However, they have a hard time seeing. If you wear dark clothes, blacks, reds, dark, greens, blues, you will be safe. But if you have on any bright colors or white, you are a prime target. Usually, they just attack deer and other forest animals for their food. But on those rare full moon occasions, they will attack and rip a human limb from limb if they find one. This is the story I have heard from numerous sources. I have gathered many stories from people who have been out there and from just people who know the myth. Justin V. Now, that's obviously quite a freaky one, folks. Um, you know, imagine, you know, going for a walk out uh, at, on a full moon and running into these creatures. If they exist, um, yeah, not something I would want to do. This one's also from Mich Michigan. And this one's titled, Caught a Glimpse of a Melon Head at Mitchell's Mill. 
I know lots about the Melonhead myth. I know that Dr. Crow's story is sort of true, but there are some facts missing. First of all, Dr. Crow did exist, but he lived in the 1940s, not the 1800s, and he was a dentist. There could have been another Dr. Crow, though. Second, full moons have nothing to do with their nasty behavior. I know this from experience with them and from experiences that others have had. My first experience with what I think were melon heads was on the east branch of the Chagrin River. My brother and I were driving along Mitchell's Mills, and I saw a quick flash out of the corner of my eye. I looked right and saw something by a tree. It was very blurry, though. I was so scared, I screamed, and my brother looked out of his window. What the hell was that, he said. I guess he saw it, too, because he turned around at the spring we were in at the spring, and we headed back. This was near Mentor Road, which is off Auburn, J. This is also from Michigan. And this one says, At Wycliffe High School in the mid-60s, we heard a different version of the Melonhead story. Some kids were driving around one day and saw a Melonhead watching them from the side of a country road. They stopped and the Melonhead ran into the woods. They followed deep into the woods and came to an old farmhouse. On the porch sat a middle-aged couple and several melonheads. The kids asked what was going on, and the man explained that he had been a nuclear scientist during World War II. After the war, he married, but the exposure to radiation caused all of his children to be born as melonheads. The government gave him a lot of money to keep quiet and bought this secluded farmhouse where they could live out their lives away from prying eyes. He asked the kids to tell no one what they'd seen and never return. Someone told this story at a party in the summer of 1964. Someone else thought they knew where the Melonheads lived, so we all crammed into cars and headed out to find them. We got stopped by the police in Waite Hill. When they found out what we were doing, they gave us a stern lecture that there were no such things and that we should tell all of our friends that there were no Melonheads. We were taken to the police station where we had to call our parents to come and get us. We all agreed that the police were so intense in trying to convince us that there were no melon heads, that there had to be melon heads. If not, why were the police so upset that we were looking for them? Paul I. So that legend seems to be in both Michigan and Ohio. Now, I'm not sure if this is the same person's story that's gotten confused, but I do find it quite interesting. It's basically the same story about this scientist and his children, and, you know, being a nuclear scientist during World War II. So this one's from Ohio, and this one says, My name is Tony, and I recently had an experience with the Melonheads. It was on October 5, 2001. My stepfather, mom, stepbrother, and me were driving down Chilcoth Road, might be misspelled in Chardon. We had been driving up and down roads in the same area for almost an hour with no luck. We were just about to go home when we came up on this stretch of road that had fields on both sides and an irrigation ditch running parallel with each side of the road. Just then, I look out my window and I saw him, a melon head. He or it was running along next to the ditch. Since the ditch was too wide to jump over, it was coming close like it was about to jump, then pulling away. At the time, we were going about 45 to 50 miles an hour. The melon head was actually keeping up with us. It didn't look anything like I've heard in the stories. He looked about the same height as me, five foot seven, was wearing brown pants which were very ripped up and up and where the seams would be, it was held together by what looked like corn husk. It wore a white shirt with with brown and red stains all over it, hoping that the stains weren't blood. 
Its head was very light brown tint. It had two holes in the sides of its head, with, which I think were ears. Its head was swelled up, and its eyes were very big looking. Just as we turned a curve, it jumped into the woods. That is my story of the melon heads. And that's from Tony. This one's from Michigan. It says, I have lived in Lake Town Township for about 12 years now and agree with everything that was said in your book, Ghost and Legend of Michigan's West Coast. I have friends who have seen the melon head in the woods a few times. Do I believe them? Yes and no. They say if you flick your car headlights, you're more prone to see something, but I'm too afraid to try. I have heard insane ghost stories about the Felt Mansion, though. People seeing kids playing at the top of the stairs and then jumping off the balcony of the house. There was also a story about teens who were going to vandalize the, the, the Felt Mansion before the restoration began in 2000. It was in the middle of the night, and a man in a horse-drawn carriage pulled up and asked them if they needed a ride. They freaked out and ran away. Well, folks, I don't blame them. That's not something that I would want. Uh, you know, scary enough being out there in the dark in this purportedly haunted place, and then a horse-drawn carriage pulls up and asks you for a ride. So, yeah, uh, that would be freaky to say the least. Now, this one's from Michigan as well. This legend has made its way to my neck of the woods, too. A little different, though. In southwest Michigan, the melon heads are said to be located behind the Cook nuclear plant in, in Brigman. There are two different stories of how they got to be there. The first story says there was an insane asylum in the woods before the power plant was built, and there was a fire that burned the asylum to the ground, and the melon heads escaped and have been living in the wild ever since. The other story says there was a group of people who lived behind the plant in the woods. After exposure to radiation, they began to have swelling of the brain, and out of embarrassment and shame, they stayed in the woods to be left alone by the public to live their lives. The nuclear plant and all surrounding property have been closed off to the public since the 9-11 attacks, but you used to be able to drive back into the woods and explore. It was a big pastime for teenagers to scare the bejesus out of themselves and their dates. I have been told that the whole area back there is like a maze, and unless you know the area well... It is very easy to get lost in. I suppose that just adds to the scare factor. So I would say that the melon heads from my area are just urban legend. But it always makes for interesting conversation, especially when talking about those who have been there and claim to have seen one. This one's also from Michigan. It says, Last year, me and some of my friends at Hope College decided we wanted to go to Allegan County Woods in Hamilton in search of the melon heads. On our first night there, we went back on a path for about a mile and came to an opening where there seemed to be a foundation of a building still there, but the building was gone. On the walk back to the opening, there was a sign hanging over the path, but it was too faded to make out the wording. On the first night, we did not experience anything too out of the ordinary that we didn't think we, could, we couldn't explain by animals and other sorts of things. We went, we went back the next night, and it was raining mixed with some lightning. Me and two other guys were leading the group down the path, and about a half a mile into our walk there was a lightning flash, and all three of us saw the same exact figure of a human, about four and a half feet tall, with an abnormally large head standing in the middle of the clearing that we had gone to the night before. We three kind of slowed down for a minute, and the next thing we knew, we heard a huge crash in the woods to the left of us. We immediately turned and ran back to the cars. Yeah, folks, I'd do that too. And this is the last story here. This is also from Michigan. And it says, I grew up in southwest Michigan and with the legend. In Bridgman, there is a small old tunnel that goes beneath I-94. 
Everyone in Bridgman grow up, grew up hearing different stories. I was always told that the nuclear plant used to test on unfortunate people, and they eventually escaped into the woods. My family and I would drive to the tunnel at night and stop in the middle. Roll down your windows, unlock the doors, and turn the car off. Honk slowly three times, and if the melon heads don't get you then, they may show up at the end of the tunnel once you turn the car back on. If they do not appear, they will get you in the woods. If you decide to turn around, they will get under your car and follow you home. To try and avoid this, drive through the woods. It is a twisting and disorienting road with very with a very few empty houses. Melon heads will be following and watching you from the woods. Just when you think you'll never find your way out, you make it back to the tunnel. Repeat the process leaving and hope that you don't bring any of them home with you. So yeah, folks, look, those are all very interesting. And as is the case often with urban legends, you hear a lot of similarities in the different states and the different locations. But, you know, each has that little bit different, you know, piece of variety that just makes it, you know, quite interesting. Um, now, there are reports of melon heads in other locations. Um, now, it says stories about deformed country people who keep to themselves go back at least a century to Europe. For example, a large family of melon heads supposedly once lived in Bavaria, Germany in the mid-19th century. So that's in the 1850s or so. An inbred family of melon heads, known as Weebleheads, were said to live out Risbury, England, around 1900. And it also says melonhead stories surfaced in Connecticut after World War II, a time when people moved away from cities into the suburbs. They probably reflect the New York exuberance, prejudice, and fear of isolated rural folk. But how did the melonheads end up in Connecticut? One theory claims that they came from a family accused of witchcraft and banished into the wilderness, where they survived and inbred. Through centuries of inbreeding, they mutated into melonheads. Now, on the Connecticut legend as well, it says, Characteristics of the legend evolve, and parts of various versions of the legend affect other parts' versions of the legend. For example, some legends claim that melonheads would bite or consume whoever entered their territory. Also, the melonheads' territory commonly involves a secluded, rustic, or dirt road running through it. This is one instance where elements of the legend interact over time and why some actual streets are mistakenly referred to as Dracula Drive by some locals. In Connecticut, some of the inspiration for a number of versions of the Melonheads legends may be attributed to the local surroundings and landmarks. Central Fairfield County is home to the now-defunct Fairfield Hills State Mental Hospital as well as the Garner Correctional Facility, both located in Newton as well as the Federal Correctional Institution located in nearby Danbury. Also, this area of Fairfield County has been historically a rural area filled with farms and forests. The proximity of several criminal and psychiatric institutions, as well as their juxtaposition to rural areas of the country, may have been contributing elements to the legend of the Melonheads. Stories about deformed country people who keep to themselves are common in legend. While the legend of the Melonheads is more widely told throughout southwestern Connecticut, one of the several other similar legends of deformed or mutated humans can be found in various locations of Fairfield and New Haven County. These legends have been told in overlapping communities where some individuals would tell different versions of one legend alongside other individuals who would tell versions of another legend. Over time, these overlapping of oral tradition 
may have allowed for the cross-contribution of elements to each other. Some similar legends include the Danbury Frog People, commonly told in Danbury Bethel, the Faceless People of Monroe, the House of the Faceless People, commonly told in Monroe, and the Mongoloid Village, commonly told in the communities of central and eastern New Haven County, like North Branford. Articles talk about a group of isolated Appalachian Mountain people in southeastern U.S., Tennessee, Kentucky, and eastern Virginia, called the Melangian. In short, it's believed that the Melangian are mixed-race descendants of European outcasts, freed slaves, and Native Americans, the damned of early American society, in a way, who decided to stay to themselves, and in general, away from the mainstream. It's also mentioned that the term Melangian was sometimes bastardized into Melonhead, so it's possible that, at one point, there was a group of people living quietly and independently in the backwoods of Connecticut who had characteristics similar to the Melangian and somehow got branded as such. Then, over time, that got changed to Melonhead, and since people tend to fear what they don't know about or understand, the stories of boogeymen, horror, were attributed to them. More than likely, people began to use the term as a way to warn against inbreeding, as tiny isolated communities are always rumored to be rife with incest and other sinful behavior. But still, this does not explain why the Melonhead story suddenly peaked in the mid-1900s, logical as it is. Where the legend started, no one knows, but most suspect that they began sometime around the 60s and 70s, around the time that many cryptids and alien activity was being documented and, and interest in the paranormal was very high. There is a general belief these days that all of these tales were circulated in order to cover up a heinous government experiment involving human children and alien DNA. It is also believed that the Melonheads really did escape some sort of facility, and it would make sense for them to fear and hate people if it was humans that created and experimented on them. So folks, what do we have here? You know, look, it's it's a fascinating tale. And again, Mike, I really appreciate you bringing it to my attention to cover over. You've got three different states at least. You've got cases in Europe. Again, you know, I don't want to dismiss such things out of hand because oftentimes in these legends you find out that there is a shred of truth. I do find it quite interesting that, you know, many of these stories in the different states have similar threads, which, you know, it, there is a possibility that, let's say, someone from Michigan moved uh, to Ohio or moved to Connecticut and kind of popularized the story. You know, I'm not going to put it past it. Could it just be, you know, something that's really horrific and really depressing, you know, like uh, these poor children who, uh, you know, had hydrocephalus and, you know, were basically outcast to the community? Could it be something more? Could it just be, you know, the tall tales of children and, you know, kind of the, the, the tales of the local gossip. Who knows? I find it extremely fascinating. And as often with these, um, you know, with these tales of urban legends and local legends, you never know what's true uh, and you never know what's false until it's proven one way or the other. So we'll keep our eyes open. And if I see more interesting cases of the Melonheads, I'll make sure that I share them. So with that, folks, uh, as always, I'd like to wrap up the program with a quote from Art Bell which says, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Now, the next program is going to be about the 2006 O'Hare UFO sighting at the O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And with that, have a great week, 